0: We are back in these early verses from James chapter 1 again this morning. I'm spending a lot of time on these verses because they introduce themes that are really woven into the whole of the letter. So they're important for us to grasp. Let me read for us this morning James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We'll let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, speak now through your word to build up our faith and grant us wisdom. Speak to us through your scriptures that we may know Jesus Christ whom you sent, and in knowing him, know you. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise through Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you ever wish you weren't a Christian? I hope not. Uh, But given the difficulties of the Christian life, it would... Uh, be understandable, uh, I suppose. Uh, I know the story of a mom who took her child to a church event, I think the boy was maybe five or six years old, and uh, the event at church featured a missionary, and the missionary talked about persecution uh, that uh, he and, and other Christians were facing where he was working, how Christians were attacked and having their p- property taken and some, you know, being constantly mistreated, some were even being killed. And as they got in the car to go home, the mom with her son, uh, as they were driving home, uh, the boy spoke up and said, Mom, uh, I sure am glad I'm not a Christian. And uh, the mom said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, because I don't want to get attacked the way those Christians are. And, of course, she had to explain patiently to her son you are a Christian, you're baptized, you belong to God, you do trust Him and, and love Him, and certainly if people were ever going to hurt you for being a Christian, God would give you the strength you needed in that moment. But that five-year-old kid at least got one thing right. He understood there is a cost, there is a price, that being a Christian is not easy. There are trials and struggles and sacrifices. The Christian life is a difficult life. James wrote his letter in part to remind these Christians in the early church that the Christian life is hard, that we should not expect anything else. It's hard because obedience is hard. Uh, It's hard because there are painful trials we must endure. But James also reminds us that the challenges of the Christian life are for our good. James is reminding his readers that whatever trials they endure, they can rejoice in the midst of them because God will use those trials to drive them towards wholeness and towards wisdom, towards maturity. Wisdom that gives us a new perspective on our trials. Uh, Consider the structure of this section here. Verses 2 through 4 are about trials. Verses 5 through 8 are about trials. Wisdom, And we might ask, what's, what's the connection? How do these things relate? This is a question we'll often have in James. What ties together verses 2 through 5 with verses 6 through 8? Why does James move from trials to wisdom? What's the logic of this? The structure of James is not always clear. Uh, a lot of times when you read Paul's letters, it's very clear how uh, the, an argument is building. There are obvious connections between different sections in Paul's letters. And you can see how one section provides the building blocks for the next. And so Paul, a lot of times, will use a therefore uh, to show you the logical connections between different connections. Not so with James. Uh, You don't get those kinds of logical connections. There is a structure, but it's less obvious. It's more intuitive. It's more subtle than that. But here I think James does give us a clue to the connection between these two sections in verses 2 through 5 about trials and verses 6 through 8 about wisdom. There's a key word that each of these sections have in common. It's the word lack. Trials teach us patience. And when patience does its work, James says, we are then perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Then immediately after that, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you are lacking in wisdom, let him ask God. The word lack links the two sections together. So here's James' logic. It's something like this. Growing to perfection, that is to maturity, so that we lack nothing means we have attained wisdom through our trials. But gaining wisdom doesn't happen automatically. We have to see that we lack it and then ask for it. We have to ask God to meet that lack, to fill up what is lacking in us until we are complete, not lacking anything. Trials show us we lack wisdom. So we will ask for it. And so then through the trial, we grow to maturity. So we lack nothing. That's really a summary of verses 2-8, through the the argument, the the logic of it. The Christian life is about discovering what we lack and then asking God to fill in what we lack so that we become complete, lacking nothing. You've heard me say this before, it's it's a commonplace, uh, but I'll say it here again. There is no growth in wisdom without suffering. There is no Christian maturity without enduring trials. There's a road, there's a, there's a highway you travel towards this destination that James is calling completeness or perfection or maturity or wisdom. The only way to get there is through this pathway that has all kinds of twists and turns, up and ups and downs along the way. It's a pathway full of trials. Martin Luther said that our trials can make us better or they can make us bitter. They make us better if they make us ask for wisdom. Because then through the trial, God fills in what is lacking in our lives. Another way to think about this is to contrast pain with pleasure. James talks about the pains that come with the Christian life. What about pleasure? Pleasure is wonderful. Lawful pleasures are good. You should never feel guilty for enjoying God's gifts. But pleasure doesn't really teach you very much. I mean, it can teach you some things, but pleasure is not as good of a teacher as pain. And pleasure doesn't lead to wisdom the way pain does. Pain is a much better teacher. So in essence, James is saying, let pain and disappointment and struggle teach you. Let them do their work on you. And in the midst of them pray, Not my dreams, O Lord, but yours. Not my will, O Lord, but yours. Be done. Learn what God has to teach you through hardship. Understand that wisdom is the fruit of affliction. Maturity is the fruit of hardship. Wisdom can only be learned in the school of hard knocks. A child who always gets his way, a child whose parents never tell him no or never make him do hard things, that child's going to be a spoiled brat. And so it is with God's children. A a person who never goes through hardship, who's never told no, as it were, remains immature and foolish. Malcolm Muggeridge, you may know that name, British author from the last century. Malcolm Muggeridge captured this very well uh, towards the end of his life uh, in a couple different places. One is a letter he wrote, uh, actually, to William Buckley. And he says this. As an old man, Bill, looking back on one's life, It's one of the things that strikes you most forcibly, that the only thing that's taught one anything is suffering. Not success, not happiness, anything like that. The only thing that really teaches one what life's about is suffering. In another place he says this, Suppose you eliminated suffering from human life. What a dreadful place the world would be. Because everything that corrects the tendency of man to feel overimportant and over-pleased with himself would disappear. Man is bad enough, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. I think there is much wisdom in that. But of course, not everyone who suffers profits from their afflictions. It's possible, as Martin Luther said, for your suffering to make you bitter rather than better. Not everyone who asks for wisdom receives it. James tells us how to pray for wisdom so our cry will be answered. He says you have to ask for wisdom in faith. The whole... Uh, with, he says you have to ask for wisdom in faith without doubting. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that you have to have already perfectly mature faith in order to have your prayer answered. The whole reason for asking, after all, is precisely because we aren't yet perfect in faith. Faith is always mixed with unbelief. We might think of the father in the Gospels with a sick boy. It's Mark chapter 9, and he cries out to Jesus as Jesus is going to heal his son, I believe, help my unbelief. That's our cry when we pray for wisdom. We're trusting God. We believe in him, but we're also saying, Lord, help my unbelief. Just as our joy in trials is not perfect joy, joy mixed with other uh, responses. Our trust is not yet perfect either. The trust we express in prayer is not yet perfect. We don't have to have a perfect faith in order for our prayers to be answered. That's not what James is saying here. So who doesn't get their cry for wisdom answered? Whose prayers will God not answer? Well, today I want us to especially look at what James says about this man who... Doubts. This man who is also described as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea. This is the man who does not get his prayers answered. His prayer for wisdom will not be answered. James is describing here someone who lives a double life. Someone with one foot in God's kingdom and one foot still in the world. And if you've got one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world, you can't walk forward. It's somebody who's serving two masters. He has split loyalties. This double-minded man wants to have God and the world. He wants friendship with God and the world at the same time. He wants the God of the Gospel and the idols of the culture at the same time. He's a double-minded man. He lives a divided life. He lacks integrity. In other words, he is a hypocrite of some sort. He doubts what he knows to be true. He says one thing and does something else. He prays for wisdom, but he's not really willing to receive that wisdom. He's not really willing to put it into practice. His words and his actions don't align. He's inconsistent at the very core of his life. He's of two minds. He's double-minded. We could say, double-hearted. He's trying to synthesize a worldly life and a Christian life. This is crucial because it's really one of the main themes of the whole letter, this double-mindedness. James has identified double-mindedness in the church, and he wants to drive it out. And so, for example, in the next chapter, well, even at the end of this chapter, he talks about being not just a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word as well. We read that this morning. Then in James 2, he shows there's such a thing as false faith. He contrasts true and false faith. It's possible to know the facts about God and the Gospel and still miss salvation because one does not have a working, transformative faith. There's a kind of faith that doesn't save. Only faith that produces fruit, only faith that produces works will save. Mere belief is not enough. In James 4.4, 4, he says, Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. The battle lines, James is saying, are drawn. You have to choose whose side you're on, whose side you're fighting for, God or the world. So you, there's no divided heart. There's no place for that here. You can't sit on the fence or waffle back and forth between God and the world. There's no neutral ground. Uh, there, there's no demilitarized zone. Uh, you got to decide, will you serve God or the world? In James 4.8, and a few verses later, he commands them, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, so again, what is James looking at? In the community, and he's especially writing to leaders in these early Christian communities, these scattered Jewish Christian communities. He's detected double-mindedness in the church, and he wants to deal with it. He wants to drive it out. Half-hearted, lazy Christians who have no fire, who have no passion for God's kingdom, who are inconsistent or lukewarm in their walk, who are compromised with the world, that's James's target when he speaks of the doubting man being tossed by the wind and by the waves. I think James may have even been thinking of the story of Peter when he uses this uh, language about the wind and the waves. Peter in Matthew chapter 14, where Peter, in a way, you could say, plays the part of a double-minded man. Not the only time we see Peter fall into this kind of thing, by the way. Uh, But certainly he seems to, uh, in that story, Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. He calls out to Jesus. He begins walking on the water himself, walking on this storm-tossed sea. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus and starts to look at the storm itself, realizing how strong the wind is and how big the waves are. He starts to doubt. He takes his focus off Christ and he starts to sink. He starts sinking in the storm. At first, Peter can walk on water. Because he's focused on Jesus. Once he takes his eyes off Jesus, he becomes double-minded. And he starts to sink. And so afterwards, Jesus rebukes him for his doubts. That connects with James as well. He's rebuked for his doubts. He's rebuked for his small faith. And so the lesson of that story in Matthew 14, I think, is really obvious. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay totally fixed On Him, Even in the midst of trial and sorrow, even in the midst of the storms of life, keep looking to your Heavenly Father as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Keep listening to His Word and putting it into practice. Keep asking Him for wisdom. You're never going to wear out your welcome. Uh, He loves to give you His gifts. He loves to give you wisdom. Trust Him and ask Him and then do what He tells you to do. Don't let the storms of life divide your trust. Double-mindedness is worldliness. Double-mindedness is the fruit of doubting God, doubting God's Word, not being willing to put into practice the things we find in God's Word. Now, of course, there's a long history of worldliness in all kinds of forms uh, in the church, all kinds of uh, stories you could point to of double-mindedness in the church. It's one of my favorites. It's kind of an extreme example. Uh, But I think because it's so extreme, it sort of makes the point. uh, You know the the history of Jesse James, right? The uh, 19th century uh, robber. Uh, Jesse James uh, in um, 1866... Committed, uh, I believe it was the first successful robbery of a bank in broad daylight. Uh, Jesse James and his gang uh, in Liberty, Missouri on February 13, 1866. The only witness to who the robbers were was a young man who was killed at the scene. And so James and his gang were never caught. But everybody all around knew that Jesse James and his gang were the ones who had robbed this bank in broad daylight. Now, what's interesting is that at the time of the robbery, Jesse James was a member in good standing of the First Baptist Church in nearby Kearney, Missouri. And it's interesting, we've got the minutes of the deacon meetings uh, that the the church kept uh, during this time. And the church minutes record there were deliberations amongst the deacons about imposing ecclesiastical discipline on Jesse James. But the minutes also record they were hesitant to excommunicate Jesse because they were afraid he might burn the church down in retaliation. So, uh, But here, every, you know, everybody knew he was the guilty one. Everybody knew he had done it. Uh, In fact, they knew where he was staying. He was staying at his mother's farm nearby. His mother was also a member of the church. In fact, his mother was uh, a Sunday school teacher. And so two of the Baptist deacons were tasked with going to his mother's house and confronting Jesse, basically following a Matthew 18 kind of procedure for church discipline. But we read in the minutes of the next church meeting, the next deacon's meeting, uh, that the deacons were unable to find a convenient time Uh, to visit the farm uh, and have their conversation with Jesse James. But then there are minutes from yet another meeting where Jesse himself shows up at the meeting and, wishing to cause no embarrassment to the congregation, simply requests that his name be removed from the roll, and the church obliged. End of story. The thing about Jesse James is that he grew up in the church. He knew the truth. He knew right from wrong. He was a professing Christian and a church member for many years, but he didn't live it out. He didn't live it out. In fact, he did the opposite, and of course he finally fell away all together. He was a double-minded man, and he eventually became single-minded in his rebellion against God. Now, it's not just the Baptists who have this issue. We know that uh, the Mafia, Uh, are very often members in good standing of the Roman Catholic Church. This is just known. You have professional criminals who are also professing Christians at the same time. They're very obviously double-minded. There's a kind of double-mindedness in that. Now, those examples are pretty extreme. Uh, You know, Jesse James, probably none of you are going to go rob a bank. But what about you? Are there ways in which you are still double-minded? What is your character when it is put to the test by life's storms, life's trials? Who are you when no one's looking? Who are you behind closed doors? Do you live with integrity? Who is the real you? What are really your priorities? Are you the same privately? as you are publicly? Are you who you say you are? You talk like a Christian, but do you walk like a Christian? You hear the Word, but do you do the Word? You may not be out there robbing banks, but do you have areas of your life where you are still double-minded? Do you tell others to forgive and yet hold grudges yourself? Do you condemn unrighteous anger in other people, but then throw your own temper tantrums? Do you tell others to submit to the authorities that are over them, but then you feel very free to disrespect the authorities that are over you? What other masters are you tempted to serve? Where in your life are you still lacking, lacking wisdom, lacking wholeness, lacking Perfection. Where are you still immature and incomplete as a Christian? You say, don't grumble, but then you complain yourself. You tell others to be honest, but then you tell lies whenever it's convenient for you. Galatians 6.4 says, let each one test his own work. What happens when you put your life work to the test when you examine your life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 5, says to the Corinthian community, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine your, 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 yourselves. Do that on your own. We should do it as a church. Are we what we profess to be? I think this is especially a big issue in The Bible Belt. Uh, In the Bible Belt, it's still relatively comfortable and popular uh, to be a Christian, unlike some other parts uh, of the country. I just saw, um, I don't watch The Bachelorette. I want that to be clear. And I hope you don't either. But I did uh, see an article about this season of The Bachelorette. Maybe you saw this too. I know it's making the, the rounds. Uh, because the, uh, the, the, the bachelorette this time around happens to be from Alabama. And so, of course, she uh, boasts about being a Christian, talks openly about being a Christian, talks openly about her uh, personal relationship with Jesus. And yet at the same time, talks very casually about uh, her fornication, uh, simply what it is uh, that she uh, fornicates. And it's no big deal. And she says, no man can judge me. She was asked about this by one of the, other, by one of the men on the show who apparently is a professing Christian and ha- raised this question uh, about sex and marriage and what the Bible says about that. And she made it real clear, no man will judge me and God himself will not judge me. Basically saying, I can sin in this way and God will, if, if, if there's any uh, sin involved, God will forgive it. But she's not going to be judged. Well, Hebrews 13.4 says, Honor the marriage bed, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. I'm afraid this bachelorette, uh, if she does not change her ways, is in for a very rude awakening. But I hate to say it, this bachelorette, I think Hannah is her name, she is a very typical Bible Belt cultural Christian. She is double-minded and unstable, and her prayers are not going to be answered because she clearly, in her own words, does not have any interest in doing what God said. I think, you know, I picked on the Baptists and the Roman Catholics. I think we Presbyterians can do this in our own way. We Presbyterians are notorious for professing what we call the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, God's sovereignty in salvation. We confess that our whole salvation from beginning to end is the work of God's grace. And that ought to humble us. If we're consistent with that, we should live lives of humility. But all too often, what characterizes Presbyterians, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches? Arrogance. Especially arrogance towards other Christians who don't share our doctrines. There's a kind of double-mindedness in that. Professing one thing, doing something else. Throughout this letter, James presses on us these really hard questions. These really hard questions. Do we have real faith, the kind of faith that saves, or mere belief? Demonic faith, as he describes it in James chapter 2. Are we living out of our faith, working our faith out in practical ways? Or are there areas of our lives, like say your thought life, that you're holding back from God, that you won't give over to Him? Are we indifferent to what God's Word teaches? Are we lukewarm to the truth of God? All different kinds of ways we can be double-minded. Some people are kind of like chameleons. They try to blend in with whoever they are around. You can put them around Christians, and they'll act like a Christian. But put them around non-Christians, it's a different story. They're double-minded and unstable. Some people live for the approval of others. They'll do whatever it takes to be popular and well-liked, to avoid disapproval. Other people have become their masters. They're double-minded, unstable in all their ways. Some people are more concerned with having a reputation for godliness than they are with godliness itself. This is one of the great problems with the Pharisees. Jesus said they did their righteous deeds to be seen by men. It was a show, a religious show, and they made themselves the stars of the show. They weren't really seeking to please God. They were seeking to look good in the eyes of men. And so Jesus said, you have your reward. You you live for the praise of men, you have it. But they were double-minded. And that's why they were so unstable. There are some people who will sow their oats, their wild oats, on Friday and Saturday night and then come to church on Sunday morning and pray for crop failure. They pose as Christians, but their lives are riddled with inconsistency. They're double-minded, unstable in all their ways. Some people are cover-up artists. They can't admit their own sins. Perhaps they have some secret or besetting sin, but they won't admit it, so they keep it in the dark, where ironically, that sin flourishes. Sin lives and grows in the dark. It's like a mole or something. It grows in the dark. You bring it out into the daylight, you expose it, and it dies. But there are people who won't let anyone get to know them well enough to expose their secret sins. They won't let anyone hold them accountable or ask them hard questions. Some people are double-minded in this kind of way. Some people simply compromise as a way of life and hope they never get exposed or caught. They cut corners. They cheat. They distort the truth. Uh, Perhaps they have a secret thought life that they know isn't right. They covet, they envy others uh, when others succeed, when in ways they haven't succeeded or have things that they don't have and wish they did. All kinds of ways we can be double-minded. We want to look generous to people, but we refuse to tithe. Again, we say to forgive, to let love cover a multitude of sins, but we hold grudges and secretly grow bitter. We say to somebody, I'll pray for you, and we don't follow through. It's just talk. We say it because it feels right, sounds like the right thing to say as a Christian, but we don't have any real intention of praying for the person. In this letter, in James, James is going to focus on how we live out our faith in all kinds of different areas. How do we live out our faith when it comes to our use of money? How do we live out our faith when it comes to looking out for the weak, the poor, the marginalized, the widow and the orphan? How do we live out our our faith when it comes to our speech? How we use the tongue? How do we live out our faith when it comes to our neighbors in community? Are we jealous or are we kind? Do we hold grudges or are we Forgiving. How do we live out our faith when it comes to the future and planning for the future? Are we presumptuous or boastful in any way? Or are we humble before God? On and on it goes, as we'll see. James is a virtual handbook of wise Christian living. James describes for us what it means to live a life of integrity, to be complete and mature, not lacking anything in any area. He calls us to be single-minded in our service to Christ, to be zealous in serving Christ. Uh, Sometimes after the Lord's Supper, during certain seasons of the year, we use this benediction, this post-Eucharistic blessing uh, that I'll I'll, I'll, uh, pronounce that reads this way. In the power of Christ's body and blood, Send us now into the world in peace, granting us strength and courage to love and serve you in all things, that we might do the work you have given us to do with gladness and singleness of heart through Christ our Lord. What's that post-Eucharist blessing all about? Really the same thing James is about loving and serving God in all things, doing the work he's given us to do with gladness and singleness of heart. You've got the double-hearted, the double-minded, and then you have the single-hearted. James calls us to a life of sincerity and authenticity, a life of integrity and consistency. That's what single-heartedness means. It means whatever cost there is to be Whatever price there is to be paid for being a Christian, you're willing to do it. Single-mindedness is the opposite of hypocrisy. You're not hiding behind a mask. Your words and your deeds agree. No, not perfectly. We're still sinners. But your faith is genuine. It's authentic. There's a basic congruence between what you say about yourself and how you live your life. You You don't say one thing and do something else. Your words and your deeds match. There's a consistency to your life. Again, your faith may not yet be perfect, but it's genuine. Living with integrity flows out of a deep sense of identity. This is really the last thing here. And James will show us this as well. Living this kind of single-minded life starts with understanding who we are. Integrity flows out of identity. Double-minded people don't really know who they are. That's why they're double-minded. That's why they're unstable. They don't have a deep sense of identity. They don't have a deep, rock-solid sense of this is who I am. So settle that question, the who am I question. Settle that question, and integrity will follow. Make up your mind to live as a Christian no matter what. Make up your mind. Commit yourself to doing what God commands in His Word. Determine right now that you will be a faithful Christian no matter what. You will be faithful to Christ in all that you do. Determine to live as a disciple of Jesus in all of life. Ask God for wisdom to fill in the gaps. The, 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 the things you lack in your life. Ask God for wisdom so that you'll become whole and complete. Be single-minded and single-hearted in your devotion to Christ. The Christian life is really human life at its best. Living a double-minded, double-hearted life never leads to any kind of long-term happiness or fulfillment or success. No, the Christian life is human life at its best. To be a faithful Christian is to be fully and truly human. Yes, it's a life of hardship, but it's also a life of joy and stability and integrity. God has called you to himself through the gospel. God has called you into union with Christ Jesus. He promises to forgive your sins. He promises to give you power to overcome sin. He's given you grace and gifts. He's showered you with mercy. He's restoring you. He's maturing you. That's who you are. That's who you really are. So live like it. Make your words and your deeds match. That's your identity. Live consistent with it. Have integrity. Make sure there's congruence, there's harmony between what you say and how you live. That's what James calls us to. That's what God desires for you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these words you have given to us from James. Father, we thank you that we can count our trials as joy because you work through our trials so we become mature and complete, lacking nothing. We know that whatever we do lack in the way of wisdom... We can cry out to you again and again and again and you will grant this wisdom we need to continue growing to maturity. Father, may we live single-minded lives. May we repent of any double-mindedness in our lives. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.